Hola. What is happening? I don't know why I open up with some Mexican uh, greeting, but anyway. Um, yeah, I suppose I better start a new rambling from the road. So buckle up, bitches. Here we go. So um, not to kick off on a dark or macabre or somber mood, but that's what's going to happen. So yeah, apologies in advance. But um, a couple of weird things that happened tonight that just happened to jog uh, old memories and um, situations and things like that that made me think about stuff that where were you when this happened sort of thing. Um, the thing, one of the conversations that came up was, where were you when Princess Diana died? Um, some of the youngins won't even know who she is. Shame on you if you don't. Um, anybody with any sort of age to them will know exactly who I'm on about. Uh, Diana, Prince of Wales, Princess of Wales, uh, Diana Spencer. Um, in that particular instance, and I can tell you on this one, I was driving home with a workmate from Sydney uh, we'd been on a course for a couple of days and we were just on the road back from uh, one of the southern suburbs of Sydney. We'd only just jumped in the car and we turned on the radio and the news came on and it had said she was just killed in a car crash in Paris. And uh, initially we sort of looked at each other and I do remember we both said, hang on, it's not April the 1st, it's not April Fool's, like, what's going on here? That can't be right. And yeah, I, th- I think the talking point for us driving home for the next three hours uh, was, holy shit, can you believe it? And we were tuning into radio stations and listening more and more uh, to the, at that stage, early details. Um, gory details were yet to come, but, um, and it was, a, it was the train wreck thing that we couldn't believe what we were hearing. So we just, as soon as we got home to our respective houses, he, I dropped him off wherever he lived and I drove back to mine, turned on the telly and there was a little late news at that stage. And yeah, it was just a little bit unbelievable. So that was um, something that got discussed today. Where were you when Diana got killed? And um, I can clearly remember. Uh, a lot of people will remember uh, where were you when the space shuttle blew up or man landed on the moon, if you're old enough for that one, or the Berlin Wall came down, um, insert historic moment in time that you remember um, significant or otherwise Um, so this brought up a memory of mine that um, me being around performance cars and especially my particular weapon of choice the the Skyline GDR and there's not that many of them floating about so for the most part, certainly the better ones or the more noticeable ones, we tend to know of or even know each other around the country. Um, one night I was sitting at home watching the news and it came on that uh, people had been killed, young people had been killed in a Nissan Skyline GDR. Uh, so they, they love adding, you know, if it's anything outside of the normal Ford Falcon, Holden, Commodore at that stage, if it wasn't anything of note, uh, if it, then it wasn't newsworthy. So they made a big song and dance and um, that they were killed in a high-speed 
crash in Newcastle. Um, and of course I had missing Skyline, so I tuned in very quickly, looked up. And the first thing I saw was one of the, they showed a, a long shot of the wreckage and this poor things, 34 was just ripped to shreds. Um, it was one of the biggest um, dismantlings of a car that I've seen in a long time. And it took, I think, less than two seconds to recognize one of the wheels, um, a, a fairly distinctive um, particular type of wheel. And I've only ever seen that type of wheel on that color R34 in two instances. One of the cars I, I knew was off the road and the other one I knew the owner and it was alive and kicking and that was the car. And it sent a chill through my bones and I knew who the owner was and I straight away I shot a message to him um, because they said that there was a survivor in the car and I'm thinking, oh, God help us all. So uh, I shot a message to him going, what the hell is this you? Are you okay? What's going on? Was the car stolen? Because I heard young people, so on and so forth. Never heard anything back from him, so it got worse and worse. And then somebody that was in the, the local area uh, got a little bit more low down um, about the story and it would, turns out it was the owner's son had uh, procured the keys while the owner was away and taken him and his mates for a bit of a joyride at speed. Didn't Was a good kid um, and normally would be respectful to a high performance car and all that, just made an error of judgment and cost them their lives. And um, I, I just remember where I was sitting, the, the lounge I was sitting on and looking up and seeing the, the wheel and it just, it still sticks with me to this day. And I, out of respect to the owner and, and the car and the memories, I'm not gonna sort of put his name out there because I've got, I hope he's moved on from that now, it was a long time ago. Um, how do you lose your son and know that your son's killed people as well, accidental or otherwise, like, God, what a mess. Um, so that was a where where were you when this happened and that was something that was very close to me and maybe uh, dozens maybe or hundreds of people within the skyline community so that was one thing but um tonight i was talking with one of my workmates that i've i've worked with for years and years and years and um both of us had a old employee who lost his dad and his brother in a huge crash and this only came out tonight and it, somebody walked across my grave it felt like um for want of a better term that when that happened they died in a, a vehicle accident um here in australia and one of our co-workers uh one of his best mates uh was watching the telly spotted this car wreck and instantly actually recognized funnily enough a wheel um, off the car, the car was a distinctive one, two and two together within a couple of seconds and worked out that uh, our mate's dad and brother had been killed and lost and um, yeah, that was uh, not a good feeling that it was almost the same scenario as me and my friend with the R34. Um, 
it's the where were you and when someone died it, it sticks with you um where was i for the royal wedding uh, couldn't really give a shit um can't remember but when the the impactful things happen um i, I sort of got me thinking about wow why do people latch onto those things because the the great moments of sadness that is it human instinct or nature or whatever to to really have those and they they stamp a, a place in your memory just like that and you, you don't tend to shake them so much the, the times of sadness but i'm gonna try and make an effort in my life now to remember where was i when this good thing happened or that good thing happened um I'd, yeah, I'm probably going to have to make a bigger effort because I don't know if it's human nature to dwell on the bad things and not pick up on the good things. Um, it sort of comes that you give somebody good service and they'll tell between, I think it's one to four people or one to five people, something like that, two to five people it might be, that they had a good experience. If you give somebody bad service, they'll tell 20 or upwards. So, in other words, people are happy to whinge, but they're not so happy to, or pardon the pun, not so happy. They're easy to remember the bad stuff, not necessarily the good stuff. That's probably a better way of putting it. Um, So, I don't quite know how that works, but yeah, maybe I just, I think now I need to make an effort to remember the good stuff. I don't know, I guess maybe so should you. Hey, uh, back on the road. It's been a while since I've done one of these, so um, strap in, mofos. Let's see what we can chat about. So it's been a hot minute. Um, what can I tell you why I disappeared for a bit? You probably don't even know or care about where I disappeared to, because if you're listening to a podcast, it doesn't really have a time stamp or a relevance or a date depending on how you listen to it do you um so i took on a new position at work which meant i thought a little bit more stress a few more hours um maybe a a lot more stress in a few hours turns out it's been a complete and utter beat down and an absolute shit ton of hours um which actually leads me to why I'm recording this podcast right now is it's a Saturday morning I don't know what time but about seven eight o'clock in the morning I've been on the road since 5 30 um and I'm doing that because I'm doing work shit but we'll get to that um yeah but the I it's uh I'm kind of lost for words here it's one of those weird things where it's that um work-life balance where somebody said years ago i can't remember who it was it's probably been said a million different ways by a million different people but you should work to live rather than live to work and i got all sorts of turned around and wound up have wound up and am still doing the damn thing where i am living to work um but it's becoming very apparent to me that this is just bullshit and I should get a life or go back to a a life that I had a good life. So 
yeah, it's one little thing I'd put out there to everybody that if you're doing a bullshit job or you're not happy for whatever reason, um, I think things have changed years and years ago. You just do a crap job for your whole career because you had a job and that was the way it was done. Um, now I think people have options and also that they look at where they're at in their job and can maybe change a few things around uh, to suit and can adapt and move and talk to people and things like that. I think years ago you used to just have a terrible job and you just put up with that crap. Um, you wouldn't even tell your spouse or your significant other or your hedgehog about it. You just do the shit. Um, so yeah, I'm in a job that's just been, yeah, a mindfuck to be honest, um, not to put too light a phrasing on it and yeah, I'm just, I'm not, it's in an industry that I love, motorbikes, um, and it should be my dream job or thereabouts. Every job's got its stresses and whatever. But this one just went from zero to off the Richter scale with stress and expectations. And it's just been, to be honest, it's been not quite a nightmare. That's probably not the right word, but it's been a beat down. That's, I just keep thinking that, that it's oppressive, that I'm certainly not happy with how it's all come about. Some of that's on me, that I haven't put my hand up and gone and said woo and pulled the reins up and, and questioned people or anything like that. But um, I'm getting paid reasonable money to do a pretty good job and yeah, it's just not working. So I've been thinking now could be the time to just get out. But then I've also swung around and thought, I'm getting older and shouldn't I just find a way of knuckling down and getting this done and maybe change a few things to make it more enjoyable that I can get through this for a long, long time and uh, maybe even retire. Let's see. But um, yeah, I guess I don't know what you all do. Um, the, the one or three people that actually listen to me, I think I know one of my listeners, I know what she does for work. Um, but outside of that, no idea. Uh, but whatever you do, I hope you do it well and you do it with some sort of enjoyment that you can take home. And the only reason we work, honestly, we're trading our life, our hours for money. So we can go and do with, with that money what we choose to do. Um, whether you are a investor in a shoe collection or you buy real estate or you like to gamble or you have a really wonderful drug habit or you spend it on the house or your family or whatever it is um that's why you work is to get money for yeah um do what to do what you want to do so yeah if you're not happy have a good hard look at it. Is it really worth it? Because the other thought is, if we keep doing this shit and we bury ourselves, we're just gonna die unhappy and that's no good to anyone. And money's no good to you if you can't take it with you or leave it to someone who'll appreciate it. So there you go. Um, don't work too hard, kids.
So here's a little thing that made me smile, getting back to the motorsports, just general petrol head thinking. Um, years and years and years ago, I used to buy, I think, four to five to six magazines a month. Cars, motorbikes, push bikes. Um, I may have even bought more. Uh, all different stuff, but stuff that interested me. And I would dissect, go over these things with a fine tooth comb and a magnifying glass and just glean every bit of information. And I retained a lot of that too, but as you get older, you, I think the hard drive gets a bit full and you can't really store it all. And what's the point? Or so we think. Um, so, and the other thing is, holy shit, is it a waste of money? Well, it's not a waste. It's, it's kind of, you're buying into some sort of education in some weird way. You're buying knowledge, but yeah, if you do the maths now with what some of the magazines are worth, and especially the overseas ones where they charge a premium one, uh, I have a, a magazine that I absolutely love called Evo magazine from England. Uh, and it costs, a, a know a third to half more than any other magazine I can justify that one because I think their writing and their opinions and their photography and their subject matter is absolutely on point to me so I'm good with it so I'll pay that but a bunch of the other ones I just let them go to because I could easily be paying a hundred to two hundred dollars a month in magazines um, which is fairly nutty but Every so often now, and I haven't bought regularly bought magazines for years, uh, and now that all the media is changing to um, e-media, where if you buy a magazine, it's one that you put on your iPad and you flip pages. And I think I've talked about this ages ago. I don't like the the lack of tactility, and there's something about having a magazine and just sitting down rather than having a some blue light streaming into your eyeballs while you're pretend flicking pages but um so i haven't bought magazines for a long time however i'm always on the lookout and if something very specific or particular catches my eyes i will grab a magazine um and it's turned into less of a fact-finding mission now as more of a treat in that uh, the, the rare times I buy a magazine, I can sit down and peruse it and enjoy it. And yeah, um, most of the magazines that I've bought sporadically lately uh, stay in the house and they're not just uh, gobbled up and thrown out or recycled or whatever. Um, they tend to, I tend to hang on to them for one or more articles that are very specific that I absolutely must hang on to. Um, a lot of them, uh, the easiest way to hook me, if you're a magazine person out there and you want to catch me, put a GDR on the cover. Um, I'm probably going to pick it up and have a look. So, um, yeah, that's just just me. But I just picked up one uh, Australian magazine, Motor, uh, October edition, 2020, and it was uh, the hundred greatest supercars ever made or exotics I, I'm trying to I haven't got the thing right in front of me now but basically exotic crazy cars um, price now object cars as it turns out when I was flicking through the pages and there's some weird 
one-off ones that I'd never even heard of um, that I'll have to do a little bit of research on. God, there's some horrifically ugly ones in there, but where taste and money has been no object as well. But um, in the back of my head, I know, uh, to me, what is the world's greatest ever supercar, that ethereal, even if I had all the money in the world, I still probably couldn't afford one because they're too rare or whatever. And I knew what it was. And there's a few that certainly make the short lifts list for me. The the 959 Porsche, the uh, GTO 288 Ferrari, the F40 Ferrari, a couple of Fezzes in there. Uh, the Lamborghini Miura, the Lamborghini Contash, the, the original supercar. Um, there's a couple of weird sort of uh, left field ones there. Um, the Bugatti, the Veyron, I mean, what a stunning piece of mechanical architecture that thing is, that what was involved to make that damn car work is just next level. Um, but anyway, I, I, and I've mentioned this particular car before and we'll get to it, but I know what I think, what I believe to be, and it's an older car now, the ultimate head kicker, the, the Mount Everest of, of any car um, so I had that in my head and I picked up this magazine and I was having a little bet with myself as to where I knew my pick would be in there and I I was having a little wager with myself that it would be at least top five if not top one but this car now is an older car and it's been eclipsed by all the new hyper cars, the Chiron, the 918, the, all of these psychos that are out there, the Celines and the, yeah, all that sort of thing. So anyway, I did the countdown from 100 down to one and like I said, ran into a couple of weird and wonderful ones that I didn't even know about. We sort of went all the way through that, me and the pages and when it came down to it, and we got down to the top five and I still hadn't seen my car yet, I was pretty hopeful. So, um, and sure enough, a couple, of, a couple of my big hitters were right at the front of the list. So I was pretty, pretty chuffed about that. Um, I was not expecting the R32 GDR to make, make list because the reality is it was a Group A car that had supercar performance or near enough on it when it was in full race trim, but it wasn't you know, unavailable, unavailable or can't afford a bull, if that's a word, unaffordable, there you go, that's the word I was looking for, um, what, or super exotic or anything like that, it was just a, a good head, head kicker to the masses as a race car, so I knew it wasn't in there and it wasn't, um, there was a R35, I think it's the R50, the new million dollar plus um, modified R35 GDR actually made the list right towards the back, uh, 60, 70, 80th, something in that range. Um, that surprised me too, but maybe the price and the um, exclusivity got it in there. I don't know. And it's it's a pretty amazing car, but it's nothing on the, the ones at the front of the list. So got all the way down to the countdown and sure enough, number one was my number one. And I was so happy about this. The McLaren F1, I still say the most single-minded, bonkers, best-designed, 
hyper car that's ever existed. And its performance now is certainly um, eclipsed by other cars. Um, it's only good for, what is it, 250 miles an hour, 368 kilometers an hour or something like that, I think was the, the figure it ran, might have been a bit more. And there's all these new ones that'll top out well over 400 kilometers an hour. And uh, I think it, back in the day was uh, about 700, 750 horsepower, something like that. It was a mid-seated, a three-seater, but the, the driver's seat was actually centrally positioned right in the middle of everything, and the two passengers would be over left and right shoulder, but there was no concessions to um, anything other than being the best driving supercar that you could buy, Gordon Murray's masterpiece. And it made the number one thing in this motor magazine which made me exceptionally happy that somewhere along the line, my good taste and good judgment actually was backed up by people that actually know what they're on about in the um, motoring world and in the journalistic world. So yeah, that was pretty cool. I'd suggest if you don't know what a McLaren F1 is, and it's not the Formula One, it's the same company, McLaren, that make the Formula One cars. Um, but if you don't know what a McLaren F1 is uh, from the 90s, go get amongst it. Um, I'm trying to think of when the car actually came out. Um, if it was early 90s, something in that range. Um, but do yourself a favor, get educated, do a little bit of studying up, watch some videos. That car is flat out amazing. And um, I've only ever seen two or three in the flesh ever. Uh, they've all been in England when I've seen them at uh, Goodwood Festival. Um, they made one that was called the long tail, uh, the LT, um, which was even rarer again. I actually managed to get to see one of those, which was cool. Um, I'll probably never get to sit in one, let alone even get a driving one, and much less ever steer one. Um, if I won $20 million of lotto right now, um, a good tenth plus of that would be taken up trying to find one of those suckers because I I think when they came out they were 600,000 pounds um, back in the day over in England and that was an enormous amount of money inordinate amount um, and everybody said they'll never sell and basically now they're for a reasonable second-hand one it seems to be somewhere between two and five million bucks so um, the last laugh is on, on them so um, just an absolutely amazing piece of kit. So there's your homework for the moment, kiddies. Um, McLaren F1, go get amongst that. Get back to me, let me know what you think. Wow. one camera down low and one camera up high and 
and apparently it's got some sort of technology that can recognise if you've got a phone in your hand as opposed to a, I don't know, what else would you have in your hand that's that shape? Maybe a vape if you're one of those millennials or if uh, maybe you have, I can't, a sunglass case? I don't know. I don't know if it can actually make out the differences between those or if you've got one of those other things in your hands that just sends you a fine anyway and says you're on the phone either stupidly pay it or they fight it and still don't get off because they can't prove otherwise. I don't know. That was just a thought. So that got me thinking. Um, Australians um, have a bit of a thing where they're driving around and if they see something that just seems to be unjust revenue raising or whatever it might be, um, they'll alert other road users because they feel it's just a rip-off or a you know, they're looking out for their fellow road users. So if they see a speed camera parked on the side of the road or a policeman with a radar to, to bus speeders hidden away somewhere, they tend to flash oncoming motorists that might get uh, pinged by those two particular situations or uh, law enforcement ideas. Um, I see it also when there's a breathalyzer unit or a mobile drug testing unit, whichever you want to call it, um, drink testing station and people will flash drivers that are heading towards it to warn them. So um, now I wonder if there's going, I don't know what the etiquette is for flashing for a mobile, mobile camera, <laughs> a mobile phone camera thing. So I was just thinking about that actually. Does that make it a Mobile, mobile camera, camera. <laughs> uh, fuck, oh, it must be early. I'm amusing myself with such stupidity. But what's the etiquette with that? Um, if you're flashing somebody, they're looking around going, what's that all about? And then, yeah. So there's certain uh, things that it made me think that I feel are just stupid and unjust that... Uh, a speed camera car parked on a dead straight bit of road just as a revenue raiser. It's not dissuading people from driving to the conditions or whatever, it's just raising money. So I tend to flash other road users, which, yes, I know is illegal, blah, blah, blah. Um, speed camera, uh, what do you call it? radars, police, that sort of thing. Certainly if it's in a, just a shitty spot. Um, and then I suddenly get a little judgmental. I look at mum and dad in their Toyota Turago barreling along way too fast in an unroadworthy shitty car with kids in the back. I don't flash them because if they get busted, well, suck shit, he deserves it. If it's a guy driving 10 or 20 kilometres an hour above the speed limit, um, not really anywhere near anybody and he's in a car that potentially has much better brakes and handling and he's really not hurting anybody, I do tend to flash them because I won't say they're being inattentive, I reckon they're, my guess is they're probably driving that little bit above to make up time or whatever they're doing, somebody's doing 100 kilometres an hour over the speed limit in the wrong place, fucking, I hope they get caught, um, I won't, if I see a mobile breath testing station somebody's looking for people who've had too much to drink I'm not flashing anybody to let fuck everybody should go through that and if you've had too much to drink and or you've got drugs in your system where you shouldn't be on the road fuck you I hope you get busted and taken off the road instantly because that's just shit 
the mobile phone thing, um, and I'm guilty of it. Um, I'll drive along and use, uh, I'll reply to a text if um, Siri isn't working or I'm not connected or something like that. Uh, if it's safe to do so, there's no one around straight to the road. Um, yeah, I'll admit to that, or I've done that in the past anyway. Um, these recordings, I do these hands-free because, fuck this, well, you can probably hear the audio quality is so shit, clearly the mic is a long way from me, so I tend to do it with either my earbuds in or just with the phone in the hold of one or the other, and yeah, um, I'll edit them where, if I've got a stop at some stage at the end of a recording or whatever, I'll pull over, then I'll just edit that so you don't hear me turning the thing off that way, but, um, I know, uh, I can't remember where, what country I was in, but I was in somewhere different anyway, and um, I was driving, I had a mate or a friend or something in the car, and um, spotted a policeman and noticed nobody was sort of flashing to make people aware, and um, thought that was weird, and then apparently that wasn't the done thing, I think that was somewhere in Europe, from memory. Um, I've also had overseas friends here where, you know, I've seen people flashing me to advise me of something coming up and they'll say, what's going on with that? And I'll tell them, oh, it's, you know, it's going to be a policeman or a radar or an accident or something like that. And they say, oh, that doesn't happen in our state or in our country or whatever it is. So, yeah, it's a bit weird. I always wondered uh, what the different countries and states, what sort of um, unsaid uh, road road etiquette again um, is observed between drivers if I see somebody in the same model car as mine um, we tend to <coughs> oh, excuse me sneeze. we tend to wave to each other because we're a, very much a minority on the road and there's a bit of a brotherhood um, in my particular well my my good car my sports car um, because there's so few of us around so we do tend to notice each other as well but just common courtesies of, you know, warning somebody that there's something dangerous coming up or something um, bad that they're about to come across that you tend to give them a bit of a, a flash or a nod or a wave or something to, you know, just do the right thing, I guess. So, yeah, it got me thinking also that, you know, what do you do where you are where maybe in the same situation as me if you see a speed camera versus, um, and I believe... Some countries don't use um, mobile alcohol testing units, or and I do know that every police car that's rolling around, I believe Australia is set up with a um, breathalyzer kit in it. So if, even if they're not sort of set up to look for that, but they see somebody driving erratically and they pull them over, they can mobile breath test them, which I think most places in the world have some sort of way around that, but um, I know um, certain countries don't actually have a tent, but they just have to judge it, uh, you look like you're drunk, so we'll take it a step further, or step out of your car and walk the line, and yeah, I think you kind of look drunk, oh, we might let you, yeah, it seems a bit dodgy, you're either drunk or you're not, set the line in the sand and go from there, but yeah, what happens in your neck of the woods that's along those lines, do you do the same thing? You see a speed camera, you advise oncoming motorists, certain ones, all of them, 
screw it, let people get busted, um, breath testing stations or potholes um, or things across the road, do you just let people find their way through that stuff, you know, good luck, we're all on the road, I've got my worries, you've got yours, or do you, yeah, what do you do, so, like I said, it's just another pretty little thing that um, came to play just while I was driving along. Public service announcement: If you can't drive the speed limit or re- even fucking remotely close to it, get off the goddamn road. End rant. So the Bathurst 1000 was on on the weekend. Uh, those outside of Australia may know of this race. Um, it's one of the hardest motorsport races in the world uh, and years ago a lot of internationals would fly up for it and um, but it's kind of turned into a two taxi race effectively with um, only Holden and Ford contesting and their cars are not really based on production things or whatever but it's still a cool race and um, as the racing's got faster the event starts later uh, so they cover the thousand kilometers 600 and the hell's that work out to be 661 miles something like that whatever it is 600 odd miles thousand kilometers and they do it in a pretty quick time um the i think the thing that has changed over the years i used to get up at ungodly o'clock uh to watch the sunrise on the telly and then they'd have the anthem and they'd kick off quite early and it'd be a whole day of racing and you'd You'd make a day of it, you'd have all your snacks and drinks and you'd have people over and the door would be open and people would come and go as they pleased. And yeah, it was a a festival sort of thing. Now, obviously, with the COVID side of things, you're not going to do that. Um, You're allowed to do that. But um, for me, Bath has definitely changed since uh, all the different brands were getting weaned out of the race itself um, kind of took some of the excitement out. Um, there's some amazing drivers in it now. There's less characters. I think there's it's become a whole lot more serious. And I suppose the bean counters are watching very closely uh, compared to the heydays where money was getting splashed around left, right, and centre. Um, it's not, yeah, quite the fun it was, but it's still amazing racing. So. Uh, I just had a new Mustang, uh, or newer Mustang, I think we've had them in Australia now for three or four years, I think officially, um, in the United States they just drive around everywhere, they're just a, an everyday car, but here they were touted as the replacement for the Ford Falcon, and um, they're a different thing, obviously they're a, a coupe versus a four-door, um, not really as practical or whatever but it's not a family car that you can go racing on the weekends which is what Bathurst used to be about until some of the coupes showed up the most notorious one would be the Nissan the GDR like mine um, which is sure as hell not a family car and uh, not an affordable one back in the day Uh, even less affordable these days um, for an old car but um, yeah I just saw a new Mustang going the other direction and it 
when they first came out, I didn't really like them much because I'd seen them everywhere when I'd go to the United States for work or for racing or whatever. And I was kind of over them, but then they um, started showing up here. So I had a little bit of a contempt for them or disdain or whatever you want to call it. But um, they're growing on me like mold. They're growing on me. And I saw this one, I thought it was quite good looking, but the race cars to conform to whatever uh restrictions they have the racing restrictions the race cars don't really look like a ford mustang their shape is a bit weird so definitely don't like them as much the holden commodore which is a european thing and nothing like the old commodores it's got a eh, it's got an okay shape it's kind of like the road car pretty close to the road car but same thing they're just shells on top of race chassis but um got me thinking of the the cars that used to be raced on sunday sold on monday that was the idea that whatever you saw racing around on the weekends at, at some of the australian race series and especially bathurst was based on the car that you could go into the showroom on monday and buy but um those days i think are pretty much gone um i was just wondering that if there's cars out there that you when you see them you relate them in your head to a race car that you like if you saw a Porsche Turbo, does that relate to a Porsche that you saw racing at Le Mans or something like that? Or if you saw a Holden Commodore, did it relate to a Holden Commodore you saw racing at Bathurst, um, the Nissan GDR? They actually started the other way around. Um, they started on the racetrack and then they came to the road um, in quick succession. It's a bit of a weird story. But um, yeah, I was just wondering the shape of a car which can be iconic. Um, what do you see that you associate with racing? What's the thing that gets your attention on that front? Well, I reckon that'll about do it for this one. So wrapping this shit up and sending it out to the universe. See you on the flip side. Take care of you. Onwards and upwards. <laughs>